0: It has been, as I have mentioned before, a delight to uh, get to know Reverend John Kelly and his family and to have them here in our church over the past little while. Our brother planted a church in Maine, and he very much feels like the northern climes are where he belongs. So he's starting to feel at home a little bit during this season down in Greenville. The summertime is a tough call for the Reverend Kelly. Uh, and again, I accl- acclimate it to the weather down here. But uh, he has a heart for the Lord. We're very glad to have him in our midst for this time as he completes his studies. God willing, he'll be finished in June, at which point the presbytery will assess or a committee of the presbytery will, uh, in part, help assess what further uh, help he needs, an internship, and then once all of that comes together, he will be licensed and hopefully sent forth to to plant a church or do whatever the Lord leads him to do. But do be praying for him and the other three men that will be finishing in June, it's not far away. And at that stage, it all begins to become very real as to what the Lord would have for them. But it's been a joy to have him with us and to labor with them and endeavor to get to know him and encourage him in the things of the Lord. And he's going to bring the Word of God to us tonight. Come and preach to his brother.
1: Amen. Amen. It's good to be here in the house of the Lord. Thank you, Pastor Tomasian, for allowing me to bring forth the Word this evening. and I'm just going to get a drink of water. Again, thank you so much for allowing me to be in the pulpit here on this Lord's Day evening. It's a joy to be with you. And Pastor Tomasian did not let you know, but I was chauffeured by him to church this evening because there's something wrong with my vehicle, so it's wonderful to be chauffeured to church. So thank you for that as well. And uh, so I invite you this evening to take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 2, if you will. Psalm 2. Let us hear the word of the Lord. Psalm 2. The scripture says, Why do the heathen rage, and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together, Against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh, the Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my Son. This day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish from the way, when His wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in Him. We trust that the Lord will add His blessing to the reading of His own holy and errant and infallible word. Let us unite our hearts together in prayer. Our Father in heaven, I am mindful this evening of just how needy I am. God, I am a weak, frail man. And Lord, I ask that Thou wouldst be pleased to fill me with Thy Spirit, that I might speak forth the Word of God in power, that God, I might do so as an oracle of God. I pray for that unction that makes all the difference this evening. God, I pray for those this evening that are outside of Christ, that do not know Him as Savior and God, that, O oh God, today that You would take Your Word, and that, God, they would find a firm, arresting resting place in their heart, and that, God, that You would open up their heart to receive the truths of the Word, and that, God, You would birth them into Thy kingdom. God, I do pray for those saints that find themselves discouraged, Lord, tonight. In light of the affairs and the problems going on in this world. God, it is so easy to be downcast and discouraged in this day and hour in which we live. But God, I pray that you would lift up our head and cause our eyes to be fixed upon the one set upon his holy hill of Mount Zion and that, God, that you would ever keep our eyes upon the Lord Jesus Christ. So, God, come and grant power to the preaching of the Word. I pray for listener alike, that, God, that you would give them that anointing of the Spirit to understand the things that are spoken. And, God, we will be careful to give you all praise, honor, and glory, for thou art eternally worthy of it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Today, we live in a world where a virus governs the whole of humanity. It does not matter where you go in this world. You can be here in these United States, Mexico, Canada, UK, Asia. It doesn't matter where you go. A virus is governing everything that is going on in our world today. We live in a society where up is down and down is up. We live in a world where right is wrong, and wrong is right. We live in a world where people declare their sin like Sodom, and there is no shame. Like Adrian Rogers said, he said, sin used to slink down the back alley, but now it struts down Main Street. This is where we find ourselves today, a people that love, To have it so, we live in a world of political chaos. Wicked agendas appear to be getting the upper hand while godly agendas are constantly being suppressed. Truth indeed has fallen out into the streets, but yet there is no repentance. We say with Elisha of old, Where is the Lord God of Elijah? Where is the Lord God in the midst of this crazy and depraved world in which we live? Our schools now in the public school system have been promoting evolution for years in immorality and all sorts of promiscuity is being promoted in our school systems. There has been the removal of the prayer from the school systems and the Ten Commandments, which was God's moral law from the face of society. And we now allow the slaughter of the unborn in our land. Our government has redefined marriage. And that has just been recent over the recent years. And they see no problem of a man living with a man or a woman living with a woman in a union together in marriage. We have become a society, as our pastor preached on last week, that does that which is right in its own eyes. We have become a society that are lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Now I've painted to you quite an unpleasant, hopeless, frightening picture. But unfortunately, this is what most Christians have in their mind as they view the world. They see all the things that I have just spoken of. They see all the problems. And because of this, many Christians, and maybe even you here tonight, you're worried. You're fearless. You're fearful. You're hopeless. But if we understand this psalm aright, I submit to you, If we understand this psalm aright tonight, it will shatter, it will obliterate such worry, fear, and hopelessness. Rather than being on the defensive, we will be on the offensive. And we will gain a perspective from this passage of hope and victory rather than uncertainty and failure of what lies ahead. There is hope, there is victory, there is triumph in uncertain times in which we live. So I want to bring to you the message this evening, being hopeful in uncertain times. Being hopeful in uncertain times. Now as I said, we do live in strange, in uncertain times, and I dare not make light of it. We are living in a crazy world. The psalmist makes this very clear in the very opening verses. We see this in verse 1 through 3. First see with me in verses 1 through 3 that there is this world's hostility. Why do the heathen rage? The people imagine a vain thing. The kings of the earth set themselves... And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. We read that there is an hostility in this world. But this hostility has an object. It is not aimed at something inanimate. This hostility that the heathen is raging the people imagining the vain things the kings setting themselves it is all against the Lord and it is against his anointed Today the world is as hostile as ever towards the things of God and towards the Lord and his anointed And in turn because they are against the Lord and against his anointed They are against those that are followers of the Lord and His anointed one. In what ways do we see this hostility of the world against the Lord and His anointed? Well, we see it first in the heathen raging. Look with me there in verse 1. Why do the heathen rage? Why do the heathen rage? Now it's interesting, this word rage here is only found this one place in the entirety of the Old Testament. And the word carries with it an idea of being in tumult or being in a commotion. Others have translated it, why are the heathen in an uproar? The nations are seen as being in a violent commotion in a violent convulsion, as it were, against the Lord and against His anointed. These nations in their fit of rage and excitement are seeking to secure something or prevent something. They're seeking to secure their own rebellion and their own autonomy against God. And they're seeking to prevent any knowledge of God entering into the minds of men. It's as if they are coming against the Lord as a mob. Why are the heathen in this uproar, in this violent commotion? We have seen the heathen. We have seen the nations in recent days coming against the Lord. We have seen it in one fashion under various dictators. We have seen it in totalitarianism. The Encyclopedia Britannica defines it this way. It is a form of government that theoretically permits no individual freedom and seeks to subordinate all aspects of individual life to the authority of the state. Mussolini, the leader of Italy that was the fascist dictator, described it as this. All within the state, none outside the state, and none against the state. And by the beginning of World War II, totalitarian had become synonymous with absolute and oppressive single-party government. And these governments, as you look at them across the world, were atheistic. They shook their fist at the face of God. The communist country of Russia with Joseph Stalin shook their fist in the face of God. Modern day China, their atheistic totalitarian government shake their fist in the face of God and so does the dictator in North Korea. These governments have removed God entirely virtually from the fabric and fiber of their nation. Not only have they removed God but many of these governments persecute and execute those who worship the Lord and His anointed. This is the way that we find some nations raging against the Lord. You say, well, that really doesn't affect me because I live here in the United States. But there is another raging of the heathen that comes closer to home. And it is what is known as secularism. This is the principle of seeking to to conduct human affairs based on secular or naturalistic considerations. It is the separation of religion from civil affairs in the state. And it can be broadened to a similar position concerning the need to remove or minimize the role of religion in any public sphere. This is where we find ourselves in our own country. We have come to the point where we are a secular nation, just like Canada, just like most of Europe. The most secular country in the world today is Sweden. We may not be totalitarian, but we have done everything as a country to remove any mention of God from the public arena. This too is a shaking of the fist in the face of God. The heathen continue to rage. They continue to gnash their teeth. As they hear the Lord and His Christ, they blaspheme His name publicly. And some have even voted God out of their own political party. The nations are raging. And this raging is against the Lord. It is against His Christ. Not only do we find the people raging, but we find the people imagining. In verse 1 again, and the people imagine a vain thing. The idea of imagining means plotting, conspiring, devising. It is the same Hebrew word that is actually used in verse 2 of chapter 1. Psalm 1 in verse 2 says this, But, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in His law doth He meditate. That word meditate is the very same Hebrew word translated imagine in Psalm 2. So, the wicked and the ungodly are directing, they're meditating, they're directing, their vain imagining, they're plotting against the Lord and His anointed. And these attacks against our Lord and His Christ These are not haphazard, but they are premeditated conspirings against the Lord. In their rage against God, they plot and devise a way to overthrow the sovereign, so they think. The attacks that come against God, that come against our Lord are not accidents, but are a demonstration of human depravity. The agenda... To remove any semblance of God from our society is satanic. The conspirings against the Lord and His Christ have an origin and that origin is found in the pit. There is the conspirings, there is the attacking, the plotting, the attack on the home. There is an attack on traditional marriage. There is an attack on human sexuality. There is an attack on morality. There is an attack on public worship. There is an attack on the person and work of Christ. There is an attack on the inspiration of the scripture. And these attacks are against God's created order. Another way to shake their fist at God. Men want to remove any idea of God from their society. Not only do we find these nations raging, the people plotting, seeking to overthrow the sovereignty of God, but we find the kings resisting. In verse 2, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against His anointed. The idea of setting themselves is they're taking their stand they are raging. They're plotting. They want to overthrow God as it were. And now they're taking their stand. They're taking counsel. The Hebrew word carries the idea of fixing oneself. And it carries the idea of being unmoved. It is as if they are digging in their heels. And they're against the Lord. And they're trying to overthrow His sovereign might. We see this. We see a comparison with the righteous man in Psalm 1 and verse 3. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. The leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. But the wicked, these wicked kings are planted not by streams of living water, but these wicked kings are planted. They have dug in their heels and they are planted by polluted streams. And they continue further in their rebellion and their ungodliness. So in their stand against the Lord, they say, let us break their bands asunder. Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. This is rebellion. This is a rejection of the sovereignty of God. They are seeking to cast off all restraint to remove the bridle, as it were. The wicked say that they will cast off the yoke of God and his Christ. And it is a rejection of the lordship of Christ. They say like those in Luke nineteen fourteen, But his citizens hated him and sent a message after him saying, We will not have this man to rule over us. That is the mindset of the world. They do not want Christ to rule over their life. They want to be autonomous. They want to make their own decisions. No one's going to tell me what I can or cannot do. Mankind today is part of the raging of the nations. They are part of those that plot against the Lord, and they too have dug in their heels against the Lord, and they agree with the poet. The poet who said so many years ago, It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. I will make the decisions for what I will do. and No one will determine my destiny but myself. They have sought to break the bands of God asunder. Nations and the people... And the kings, they look so high. They look so mighty now. It appears that many, to many that they are winning. Preacher, you just don't understand. The wicked are advancing. Don't you see all the craziness that you talked about? It's advancing all over the place. I have every reason this evening to worry. I have every reason to fret. I have every every reason to be hopeless as it were the schemes of man are advancing and the cause of god seems to be failing and we say where is god has the will and plan of god really been thwarted by man not in the slightest i want you to consider with me secondly heaven's sovereignty we have considered we have considered the world's hostility but now heaven's sovereignty in verses 4 through 9 And verse 4, he that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. You must understand that the world's hostility cannot overthrow heaven's sovereignty. In spite of man's attacks against God, the heavens do rule. Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Daniel 4, 35, no one can stay his hand. And say to him, what doest thou? The Lord right now looks over the balcony of heaven and he sees the raging. He sees the imaginations. He sees the resisting of man. And as he sees that, it is no thwart to him. It is no threat to him. There is no panic in heaven right now about what is going on on planet earth. God is perfectly aware. And as the Lord looks... And what you and I are so concerned about. You know what the Lord does? The Lord sits in the heavens. The scripture verse says that He laughs. That He sitteth in the heavens and He laughs. As man plots and attempts to overthrow God's sovereign might, God laughs. Now why does He laugh? Because the kings of the earth are no match the king of heaven. The the little speck on planet earth is trying to overthrow the one who spoke it into existence. The kings have forgotten that it is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers. The nations are but a drop in the bucket to him, Isaiah 40 and verse 15. The Lord by one of his angels, you remember, smote 185,000 men in one night in 2 Kings 19.35. The, mankind, the nations, has no way to overthrow the might of God. It is arrogancy and it is pride on the part of man to think that he can take on omnipotent God. And because of this, the Lord sits in the heavens, he laughs, the Lord shall have them in derision. Albert Barnes says regarding this idea of having them in derision. He says that in the divine mind, it is as if men had mocked and derided, as if God had mocked or derided the vain attempts of man. That is, he goes calmly forward in the execution of his purposes. He looks upon, he regards their efforts as vain, as we do the efforts of others when we mock or deride them. Or, in other words, if I could condense it down, what Barnes is saying is this man trying to thwart the will of God is like a man trying to use a pebble to dam Niagara Falls. It cannot be done. No man can overthrow the sovereign might of God. We have here the Lord laughing, but then, secondly, we have the Lord terrifying in verse 5. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath, and vex them in his sore displeasure. Now you could also translate this. It's interesting uh, the, the the meaning of these different words, or the idea uh, the idea of vexing carries the idea of striking terror here in the heart of someone, to terrify them in his hot fury or his hot displeasure. Those who come against the Lord in His anointed will be met not only by God's laugh, but they will be met by His wrath. Men will quake in fear before Him. One day, all those that have shook their fist at God, those that were part of the raging mobs of this world, that have thought to overthrow God's sovereign might, that have dug in their heels against His sovereignty, And declared their own autonomy. That said I will be the captain of my fate. I will be the captain of my soul. One day they will stand. Before the Lord. At that great throne of judgment. And they will stand before the one. Whose eyes are as a flame of fire. And he will terrify them then. In his fury. In his displeasure. Those against the Lord. He will come to them in a perfect, terrifying, and blazing indignation. The kings of the earth again are no match for the king of heaven. I wonder what it will be like on that day of judgment when these rulers that have dug in their heels, these kings, these dictators... Not just them, but apply it to the ungodly around us. When they stand before God on judgment day. What will it be like when the rulers who have murdered Christians stand before God? What will it be like on that day of judgment? When the abortionist stands before God. What will it be like on that day of judgment when the secularist stands before God? The wicked men will be found wanting on that day of judgment. Here are these ungodly people. The Lord sits and He laughs. Why? Because the Lord reigns. Verse 6. Yet have I set my King. Upon my holy hill of Mount Zion. While the kings are devising a way to overthrow the sovereignty of the Lord. The Lord points to the established king of heaven. And this is what I want you to see tonight. As you look at the hostility of the world. I want to point you to the one that is seated on his holy hill of Mount Zion today. Ruling and reigning and putting everything beneath his feet. This is what you must see today. So often we have our eyes set upon the circumstances, set upon the storms all around us. We have our eyes upon what's happening on the news, what's happening in this country, what's happening in the presidential administration. And we have lost sight of the one who holds the heart of the king in his hand. He turns it whithersoever he will. My friend, that's the one we need to be looking to tonight. The Lord has set his king upon his holy hill of Mount Zion. This is the one upon the throne of David today. And he is in the heavens. It is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. When did Jesus assume this role on the throne of David at his ascension. My friend, we're not waiting for Jesus to reign. He's reigning now. He is in heaven, ruling and reigning today. And Daniel 7, verse 13 and 14, the Bible says that the Son of Man went up on the clouds of heaven and came up unto the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. There's only one time I read in Scripture about the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ, going up on a cloud. I read about that in Acts chapter number 1, at His ascension. When Jesus ascended up into heaven, He ascended up on clouds of glory. He came up unto the Ancient of Days. And the doors of heaven opened that day to a man. And he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high upon the throne of his father David. And there was given to him a kingdom, dominion, and power, and glory that shall never be taken away. The Lord reigns today. And he has all dominion today and authority. Peter, in Acts 2, that great Pentecostal sermon, he said in Acts 2... In verse 29 through 36, he said that David spoke before as a prophet. And he connects in uh, Acts 2.30, he says, Therefore, being a prophet, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his loins according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. Now, when would this happen? He seeing this before spake of the resurrection of Christ. Ah, this is connected with the resurrection. That their soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted. So here we have the resurrection, the exaltation, and what is the evidence that Jesus is reigning today from his throne from on high. He has sent forth the promised Holy Ghost, which you have seen and you hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith unto him, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, until I make thy foes thy footstool, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified both Lord and Christ. Jesus is king now. You mark it down. He is king. All dominion, all authority. Matthew 28, all authority is given unto me in heaven and on earth. He has it now. The Lord sits as king now upon His throne. We need not worry about the rulers and kings of this world, for the Lord is seated in heaven as king above them all. The kingdom of Christ is here now. The stone kingdom that was spoken of by Daniel is here now subduing the kingdoms of this world. This kingdom is a spiritual kingdom, not a physical one. Jesus said in Luke 11 and verse 20, If I by the finger of God cast out devils, then indeed the kingdom of God has come upon you. In Jesus' day, He was ushering in the kingdom. In Luke 17, 20 and verse 21, He said, The kingdom of God cometh not with outward observation, neither shall they see, say, Lo here or lo there, for lo, the kingdom of God is within you, a spiritual kingdom. John 18 and verse 36 Jesus, speaking to Pilate, said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom was of this world, then would my servants fight? Jesus sits today on the throne of his father David in heaven, ruling and reigning and submitting every enemy underneath his feet. It is a spiritual kingdom. And you and I are his subjects by virtue of the new birth in Jesus Christ. We see that this king that is ruling is none other than the greater son of David. So read in verse 7, for I will declare in Psalm 2 verse 7, And I will declare the decree the Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. The latter part of this verse is attributed to Christ in the New Testament on several occasions. This king that is set upon the holy hill of Mount Zion is identified As the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to see as we continue to think about the heaven's sovereignty. Here we have forth under that the Lord giving in verse 8. Ask of me and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance. And the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Now in the context here. The son of verse 7. Where he says, "'Thou art my Son, this day have I begotten thee.'" The Son of verse 7 is to ask God the Father in verse 8 for the nations. This is what we have here. He says, "'Ask of me.'" Who is to ask? Well, the Son. "'Ask of me, and I will give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession.'" And since the Lord is reigning now and has all power and all dominion now, we should expect that He will give the nations to His people. Is this not why He gave us the Great Commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature? The nations were to be given to the Son on the condition that He would simply ask for the nations. The Father says to Him, Ask of Me, And I will give you the nations for your possession. Now I want to ask you a simple question. Did Jesus forget to ask the Father for the nations? Did Jesus forget? No. He asked the Father for the nations. Ultimately, in time, we should expect to see the conversion of nations to Jesus Christ. I just This is something that is laid out throughout the Psalms. It should not fascinate us. It's something the Scripture teaches us. So I want you to just go with me to a few verses in the Psalms just to see this for yourself. Look with me in Psalm 22. Turn there. In Psalm 22 and verse 27. Psalm 22 and verse 27. Great Messianic Psalm, it says there, All the ends of the world shall remember and turn unto the Lord, and all the kindreds of the nations shall worship before thee. Isn't that great? All the nations, all the kindreds of the nations shall worship thee, for the kingdom is the Lord's, and he is the governor among all nations. Look with me as well in Psalm 66. In Psalm 66, we have it again. Psalm 66, in verse 7, Scripture says, He ruleth by His power forever. I'm sorry, Psalm 66, verse 4. All the earth shall worship thee, and shall sing unto thee. They shall sing to thy name. Selah. Think about that. Isn't that a marvelous statement? Here he says, All the earth shall worship thee. Look with me as well in the next psalm. Psalm 67, verse 7. God shall bless us, and all the ends of the earth shall fear him. Psalm 72, verse 8. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea, and from the river unto the ends of the earth. Verse 11. Yea, all kings. Remember those ones we were talking about? They were shaking their fist at God, those that were having vain imaginations, those that were digging in their heels against God. Here he says, all kings shall fall down before Him. All nations shall serve Him. In Psalm 86 and verse 9, All nations whom thou hast made shall come and worship before thee, O Lord, shall glorify thy name. All nations. Do you think the Son forgot to ask for the nations? No, all nations. The Bible tells us in the book of the Revelation that there will be people say from every nation tongue tribe from all over the face of the earth the bible makes that very clear malachi 1 in verse 11 says that from the rising of the sun even to the going down of the same my name shall be great among the heathen saith the lord and in every place incense shall be offered unto my name my name shall be great Among the nations, saith the Lord. So slowly over time, we should expect the gospel to permeate the whole world. This is what Jesus spoke of in Matthew 13. A little leaven getting into the dough. The gospel... The gospel of the kingdom is like a little leaven, but eventually it permeates the entirety of the world. It's like a mustard seed that is planted in the ground. Oh, the church was so small, was it not? In the days of the apostles and prior to Pentecost, there were just a few there gathered in the upper room, but on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 were converted, and we see things happening all over the world. The church grew. It was like a mustard seed planted into the ground. It grew up and became a tree. And now the birds come and they find a rest in its branches. What a glorious picture of the gospel. This is not something that is done rapidly or brought about by some apocalyptic event. This should stir great vigor and zeal in our hearts for evangelism. My friend, when I read these verses in the Psalms, but all nations... Kings bowing down. This is an encouragement to me. That things will not remain the way they are forever. That there is a day coming when all will submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I'm not saying that every person will be saved. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not claiming to be a universalist. But there is a real sense in what the Bible says the knowledge of God covering the earth The waters cover the sea. What a hope. We have not been sent on an empty errand. When the Lord told us to go into all the world and preach the gospel, He didn't say go into all the world and preach the gospel and hope that some get saved. He said, no, I've asked the Father for the nations. You go and they will be one. And people will come to Christ and churches will be built. Missions and the planting of churches are not... Uh, meaningless but they serve to a grand purpose but how will this happen ask of me and I will give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession we read in verse 9 of the Lord breaking the Lord shall break them with a rod of iron thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel What, what does this mean What What does he mean here? Who are the them in verse 9? Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Well, the immediate referent here goes back to verse 8, and it is the heathen. He says, ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen. This is who he's speaking of. It is the immediate referent to them. Remember, verse 8 has to do with Christ winning the nations... So the rod must be understood in light of this verse. John Calvin, the great French reformer, equates the rod here with the breath of his mouth. He says this is the word of God and the gospel. Many commentators agree that those who refuse to submit to God's sovereign sway will be crushed and destroyed. Oh yes, there is an understanding that those that are ungodly, they will be crushed and destroyed. And this was in part fulfilled when the Jews who continued in their unbelief were destroyed in 70 AD when the Romans sacked Jerusalem. And there was also a secondary destruction of the pagan power when the Christian religion came to be established. This will not be completely fulfilled until all opposing power and principality is put beneath His feet. They will be won by the rod. But this is not a physical rod. This is a spiritual rod. It is as Calvin said, it is the rod of His mouth. This comes from Isaiah 11 in verse 4. If you're not familiar with Isaiah 11, it it is about the kingdom of Christ. And so how is it that the nations will be one? Well they will be ruled by this rod of iron. They will be broken by this rod of his mouth. We read in 2 Thessalonians 2.8 another reference to this where that Antichrist will be destroyed and be consumed by the spirit of his mouth. Now This is a reference, no doubt, to the gospel message. Dr. B.B. Warfield, the great Princeton theologian, commenting on Revelation 19, 11 through 21, said that this is a great symbolic picture to us of the victory of Christ. He said, here you have the one on the white horse, coming forth, conquering to conquer. His garments are dripped in blood. And we read there that a sword proceeds out of his mouth and he has the rod in his hand. And he said, the sword is the word and the rod of iron is the gospel by which he will subdue the nations and win the nations. It's quite an interesting thought. It is this preaching of the gospel that will subdue its enemies and overcome them. The nations are aging, the people imagining, the kings resisting will be overcome by the king of heaven's message of the gospel. The gospel is the power of God. There is nothing more powerful on this earth than the gospel. There is no atomic bomb, nothing known to man that is more powerful than the gospel. Why? Because when the gospel is embraced, when a person believes the gospel, God takes someone that is dead and trespasses and sins and He makes them a new creation in Christ. He gives them a new name. They are totally made over. They are a new person. It's a glorious message. Again, the King enthroned in the heavens will meet the world's hostility with a message of victory. And you, my friend, are a testimony you here that are saved by God's good grace, you are a testimony of this rod of his mouth subduing your stubborn will. The gospel caused you to bow the knee to the lordship of Jesus Christ by the sword of the spirit and by the breath of his mouth. You are now bowed before King Jesus. And you are his servant. Eventually, as this message takes a root in the world, as we have read about, and as we read about in the Psalms, and as Malachi said in Malachi 111, that this message will be from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same. there is not a place where God will not be known, and a place where God will not be worshiped. In every place incense will be offered unto him, prayers sent up to him. My friend, this is not a reality now, but the Bible says it will be. And we should pray to that end that God would glorify His name and that God would gain the nations as He has said here in His word this gospel takes root and will usher in a golden age in which men will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks and nation will not take up sword against nation neither will they learn war anymore. Isaiah 2. In Isaiah 2 it says in the last days the Lord will establish a mountain. He will establish a mountain My friend, we are living in the last days. Do you understand that? Since the days of Christ, we have been living in the last days. And the Bible says that God is going to establish a mountain that is above all others. Jesus said, you are a city set upon a hill. Let your light so shine before men. We are that mountain. And God says that this mountain will be elevated. And it will cause all the nations, he said, to flow up unto it that there will be something attractive about this. And it is the gospel message that will draw the nations up to this elevated mountain. This is a great promise that we have. The gospel will bring peace on earth and goodwill to men. We sing it so often around this time, but it will be a reality. Peace on earth, goodwill to men. How will it come? Through the word of God. Through the preaching, the Spirit-blessed gospel, God will do it. The times are uncertain. Man's plan, but God's plan is certain. Brighter days are ahead for the church of God. I encourage you, brighter days are ahead. They are coming. The Bible says, As we have said, ask of me, and I will give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Adoniram Judson, the great Baptist missionary of yesteryear, said the future is as bright as the promises of God. I believe that today just as much as he believed it then. But I feel and I fear that there are many that cannot say that this evening because they are focused on all the problems and not focused upon the king. My friend, when your eyes are focused upon him, you can say with Judson that the future is as bright as the promises of God. You need to stop looking at the rulers on earth and start looking to the one seated upon his holy hill of Mount Zion. The last thing we want to consider is what is found in verse 10 through 12. Man's responsibility. We have the world's hostility. Hostility. But the world's hostility is met with heaven's sovereignty. But then we now come to man's responsibility. Verse 10 through 12. Now that we know of heaven's sovereignty, we must call hostile men to responsibility. And it's not enough to know of heaven's sovereignty. It's not enough. We must press this sovereign rule into the public sphere. People must know that Jesus is Lord. This this one whom you have crucified is both Lord and Christ. It is not God's desire that governments are simply secular or totalitarian or Muslim. They too must be under the authority of Christ. There are three spheres of government. There is the family, there is the church, and there is the state. And every single one of them must be underneath the authority of Christ. I agree with Abraham Kuyper. There is not a square inch of planet Earth where the Lord does not cry, Mine. Everything is His. He has orders from heaven, and we have orders from heaven to call rulers into obedience to the word of God and salvation. We must not be silent in the face of wicked rulers. Rather call them to repentance. Is this not what Paul did when he was there before Agrippa? Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. And sometimes I think to myself as I read through the book of Acts that Paul kept on appealing because he wanted to speak to those in positions of authority and call them to faith and repentance. Why? Because all those, not just those people that are not in government, but even those in positions of government, all men, we are to call them to bow the knee to King Jesus. We must not be silent. These rulers are to be held accountable. This psalm ends here in verse 10 through 12 with five imperatives, five commands. He says in verse 10, be wise. Be wise. Now therefore, O ye kings, be wise. In light of everything that he has said, be wise. These kings best take heed. In light of the judgment that will issue forth from the Messiah, these kings do well to lay down their arms of resistance. And if you are here today, and you are like These kings that have dug in their heels and you are resisting God. Oh, you might be in a church service, but in your heart, there is this resistance that I want nothing about God. Be wise. Be wise. There is a judgment day coming. And if you continue on the broad way, you will end in hell. You need to heed the voice of Christ today. Kings need to come to terms of peace with the king of kings. Today our leaders, today maybe even you, here in the pew, that are outside of Christ, need to come to terms of peace with this king. You know what the good news is? He has extended to you today terms of peace. He has extended to you terms of peace but they are his terms of peace there is only one way to the father and it is through Christ he will not accept any other way for anyone that tries to go up any other way is a thief and a robber if you turn from your sin embrace the gospel surrender to him there is mercy and grace what He wants you today to do is to put up the white flag of surrender to the Lordship of Christ, to submit to Him, to say that He will be Lord of my life. No longer will I be captain of my fate, but there is only one hope in life and death, is that I belong to Christ. That is the only hope that we have. And if you die in your sin, if you die not accepting his terms of peace, right now you can settle out of court with Christ. But if you do not do so, on the day of judgment, the verdict will be final. There will be no court of appeals on that day. Be wise, be instructed. Be instructed now. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. This is calling the kings to submission again to the Lord and His anointed. He's calling them to be exhorted. He's warning them. Essentially emphasizing the same thing that He has already done. And being wise. He tells them to serve the Lord with fear in verse 11. You know what this is? It's a call to rulers and it is a call to you if you are outside of Christ. Turn from your idols. Serve the Lord, not the creature, not the creation, not money, not idols, but serve Jehovah. Serve Him with fear. And we are to call those in positions of authority within our state and within our country. We are to call them to serve in the fear of the Lord for their office has been ordained of God. The king is actually to promote God's purpose of establishing a kingdom under Christ. We read in Isaiah 49 and verse 23 that the kings are to be nursing fathers to the church. Our Confession of Faith, Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 23, section 3, says that the civil magistrates may not assume to themselves the administration of the word and sacraments, or the power of the keys of the kingdom of heaven, or in the least interfere in the matters of faith. Yet, yet, as nursing fathers, it is the duty of the civil magistrate to protect the church of our common Lord, Thou giving the preference to any denomination of Christians above the rest, in such a manner that all ecclesiastical persons, whatever, such shall enjoy the full, free, and unquestioned liberty of discharging every part of their sacred functions without violence or danger. We are to call our people in positions of authority to submit to the King, and to serve Him aright. Then He calls them to rejoice with trembling, Verse 11, rejoice with trembling. The idea is that the kings and we should welcome the purposes, as Barnes said, welcome the purposes of Jehovah and exult in His reign, but that it should be done with a suitable apprehension of His majesty and power, with a reverence which becomes a public acknowledgement of God. My friend, as we come and we worship the Lord, the Lord calls us to worship Him, rejoice in Him with trembling, with a suitable apprehension of who He is, of His majesty, of His glory, of His power, with a reverence that becomes the public acknowledgement of God. This is why when we come here tonight, there, this is not an entertainment show. We do not have up here fog machines, colored lights, and lasers, and a drama team, and a rock band. But what we have is the singing of psalms and hymns, and spiritual songs. We have the worship that becomes a thrice holy God. We have preaching that seeks to make much of Christ, and make much of His blood. The last imperative, he says, to these rulers is this. Kiss the Son. This he says to you tonight. If you are outside of Christ, kiss the Son. Lest He be angry and you perish from the way when His wrath is kindled but a little. This Son they are commanded to kiss is Christ. Kiss the Son. The idea of kiss here, it actually comes from an oriental custom of this day. And it was a way to show respect to one of superior rank. And if you were to kiss uh, another officer, you were acknowledging that they were your superior. And this is what Christ is calling all of us to do tonight, is to kiss Him to acknowledge that we are not the sovereigns of our life, but He is. Kiss the Son. No ruler or you yourself is the master of your fate or captain of your soul. Hear the command of the gospel today and bow the knee of Jesus and crown him Lord of all. And by doing this, the kings of the earth are acknowledging heaven's sovereignty. And this was a way of showing allegiance to a king. We find this several times in scripture that you would kiss one of higher rank. And if they fail to show allegiance to the Son, they would ultimately perish. Here he says, kiss the Son lest He be angry and you perish from the way. And if you too fail to give allegiance to the Son, you will perish. The kings who did homage to the Son would be blessed. The kings are presented with life and death. And today is presented to you life and death. Just as we read in the book of Moses, today is presented to you life and death. Choose life that you might live. And I submit to you today, choose a life. Kiss the sun or you will perish in the way. I beg you, choose a life that you might live. So, in conclusion, we have seen the world's hostility. We have seen heaven's sovereignty. We have seen man's responsibility. We are living in uncertain times. We are living in days where we just don't understand what's going on. But we need not be worried. We need not be fearful. We need not be hopeless. The Lord has set his king upon his holy hill of Mount Zion. The Lord Jesus is seated and reigning today. Earth's kings have no ability to overthrow heaven's king. Our king is victorious. He will win. Our king is submitting rebels of the gospel to his cause. Most quoted verse in the entirety of the New Testament is Psalm 110 in verse 1. that says, Sit thou at my right hand. God speaking to the Son, Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. This verse is quoted or alluded to 23 times in the New Testament. My memory serves me right. The next verse it is referred to the most is only seven times. In the New Testament. This is very important to God. The idea of the current reigning king of heaven. Subduing every enemy underneath his feet. Our king will gain the nations. Subdue rebels and rebellious kings by the power of the gospel. We have no reason to be defeated. When we are on the winning side. We have hope because of the glorious gospel and the fact that our king will submit all his enemies underneath his feet and the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. So I encourage you tonight, look to your king. Look to him for he will accomplish mighty things. There is no ruler, there is no politician, there is no principality. There is no darkness, no devil that can stop the present reigning king of fulfilling his promise of making his name great among the nations. It cannot be done. So to all of that I say this. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this evening. Lord, I thank you for the truths of the Scripture. God, I pray that God that you would allow these sayings to sink down into our ears and into our hearts. And God, I would rejoice much tonight, Lord, if thy people would have their eyes fixed upon Christ rather than all the problems around us. God, it is so easy to get discouraged. God, might we ever be looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. God, running this race, looking unto Him. God, we thank You, Lord, that we have a reigning King in glory today that will fulfill every single one of His promises For all your promises are yea and amen. God, we pray, fulfill your word. God, we want to know, we want to see, Lord, the things we have read about tonight in the scripture. God of kings bowing down before thee. God, might we even this week hear of some king's heart being humbled God, we see it in Jonah's day when he went and he preached to the Ninevites and the king called a fast and you, and you revived and you brought conversion to an entire nation. God, we saw what you did with Nebuchadnezzar when you humbled the proud heart of a man until he acknowledged that there was a king in heaven. God, we pray that you do it in our days. The God that we would see mighty advances of the gospel. The God that you would turn the tide. The God that we would see you building your church and causing it to break forth on the right hand and on the left. So God, get a name unto yourself. And get all glory, we pray, in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.